It's great to be uh, speaking to you today as we continue our series in Luke. And I want to speak today about how to build your resilience, how to build your resilience. And we're going to be looking at a passage, Luke 22, from verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The son of man will go as been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. So I want to speak today about how to build your resilience. And it's a key question in life. How do we not just survive, but thrive through life with all the challenges and opportunities that come our way? Harvard uh, Business School uh, did some research, and they asked one particular uh, CEO what he wished he could test for when people came into his company for interview. He said, resilience. Because that is the thing, more than skill set, more than gifting, more than enthusiasm even, that will make the difference over the course of a career as to whether someone thrives or not. Resilience is the thing that can make a difference not just to your career, but to your life. But what is resilience? Well, resilience comes from the Latin resilience, and it means to not just absorb pressure and be overwhelmed by it, but to absorb it in such a way that you are able to spring back and use it to your advantage. That's resilience. And one way of describing it is is kind of like the difference between an oak tree and a palm tree. So an oak tree, wonderful though oak trees are, um, has relatively shallow roots and is quite rigid. So when a storm comes, it can be blown over relatively easily by the storm. And uh, a palm tree, though, a palm tree has a lot of flex. So a palm tree, though it doesn't look that strong, when it's blown by the wind, can actually bend to 40 or 50 degrees and then return to its place without breaking or being blown over. And there's another way of trying to, I was trying to think how I could communicate this to you. So this is a piece of oak. And what you're looking for, really, is the fact that, you know, if, 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 if an oak tree bent, oh, it, it just breaks. And that's... Um, that's, that's what it means, you know, it just, it's quite easy to break it. Whereas there are other things which actually have quite a lot of flex in them. So you can actually bend them quite a bit. I'm very careful not to break this because that would ruin the whole illustration. Um, you can bend it quite a lot and it returns to its position. It springs back. And that's what resilience is. It's not so much how strong you look, but how much flex you've got. And it's actually a key quality in terms of our faith too. What are the truths 
What are the relationships? What are the practices which will enable us to build the resilience of our faith? And it's fascinating because in this passage, Jesus is facing huge pressure. There is literally a price on his head. People are trying to take hold of him and execute him. That's why there's this kind of, you know, meet this person, go to the upper room. It's all very kind of, feels like a spy film or something. The reason is Jesus knows they're after him. He knows they want to kill him, and it can't happen before the appointed time. He's got a price on his head. He also knows that one of his closest friends has already betrayed him unto death. And he knows that it's a matter of hours before he will face the greatest challenge in his life. In an unjust trial, cruel, cruel torture, and a shameful death. And his priority is to ensure his followers understand the significance of what is about to happen and have what they need to thrive in what is to come. Because they're going to face huge opportunity, but also huge oppression. They're going to have great spiritual power, but they're also going to face persecution. But it's interesting. Jesus doesn't give them a formula or a flowchart to communicate the significance of his death. He gives them a meal. And that meal, the Last Supper, has significance for actually the whole of our lives. It's a meal which the church has celebrated for over 2,000 years. And it helps us to build our resilience here now in London in 2018. So the first thing we see in this passage is how important it is to be reminded. One of the most important things about you is actually the memories you carry. Memory is key to identity. It's how we kind of understand who we are, how we sort and filter our experiences in life and attach meaning to them. But sometimes, I don't know if this is your experience, but sometimes um, we forget, we kind of remember things we want to forget, and we forget things we really need to remember. And so Jesus, with all that he's facing, his earnest desire, his great desire, his desiring desire is to have Passover meal with his disciples. And the Passover was a meal which the Jewish people had celebrated for over a thousand years to remember who they were, to remember their identity as a people that God had rescued. That they weren't just free people, they were people who God had freed. And they could have been ashamed about the fact they were in captivity. But God said, no, don't forget that I'm the one who saved you out of captivity. And God didn't want them to forget their history. So they had this meal, and it was laden with significance. There were spices to remind them of the bitterness of captivity. There were stewed fruits, the color of which reminded people of what the bricks that they had to make without straw in Egypt looked like. There was unleavened bread to remind them of the haste with which they had to leave. There was a lamb to remember the lamb that they had sacrificed. Wine to remember the blood of the lamb which they had painted on the doors to protect them as God's judgment passed over that nation. And Jesus uses that meal to communicate the significance of his death in a way that they would never forget and always remember. And it's fascinating because memory is anchored to our senses. Some of the key memories of life will be tied to your senses. So touch. I can still remember when I was five years old, 
being on the floor of my grandma's kitchen and feeling the feel of the way that carpet felt. It felt a bit odd, um, the carpet in her kitchen. I can still remember the way it felt. I, uh, I, when I was a teenager, I, I, I used to swim competitively and I swam in a number of galas, did lots of training in the pool. And I can, if I smell chlorine to this day, adrenaline kicks in, my heart rate rises, and I feel like I'm going to go and compete in a swimming gala. Like, it doesn't matter where I am. I can be at the pool with my girls. I smell chlorine. I'm like, right, let's go race. Like, I, it's so strange. It's like the memory is so profound. Taste. I can vividly remember when I was seven years old, Chinese friends of my parents bought my parents a duck, which my mum roasted. Um, my parents had been in the Far East, and my mum roasted, and we had Chinese duck for the first time in my life. And I remember eating it and thinking, this is it. This is all I ever want to eat. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. This is going to be my meal for the rest of my life. It was so delicious. Sound. I can still remember the sound of my dad's voice when he dropped me off in the car just before I took my A-level exams. He turned to me in the car, and he looked at me, and he said, Steve, it doesn't matter how it goes with these exams. I want you to know I will always be proud of you. And I was thinking, like, is this reverse psychology? <laughs> like, does, is he trying to make me do better? But the reason I knew it wasn't is because there was something in his tone. And I can still remember the tone of his voice as he said that. Sight. Do you know, I can still remember the exact shade of red of the hoodie Beth was wearing when I first saw her at university. Your senses anchor your memories. And all those senses, you know, touch, taste, smell, sight, hearing, are engaged in this meal. And Jesus takes the whole meal, the Passover meal, and there was a moment where the host of the Passover meal would stand and would explain the significance of the elements on the table. And Jesus takes this whole meal and he applies it to himself. He uses it to explain the significance of his death. He takes the bread, takes the unleavened bread, and he breaks it and says, this is my body given for you, given for you, in your place, on behalf of you. He takes the wine. He says, this is my blood shed for you, poured out for you. He wants them to see its significance that Jesus' broken body, poured out blood, is for them, is for us, for me, for you. And it's fascinating as well because actually none of the gospel writers refer to there being a lamb on the table. And the lamb was like the centerpiece. You know, the lamb that was sacrificed. It was a key part of the meal. And, and you know, why, why do none of the gospel writers refer to it. You know, Tim Keller says the reason there wasn't a lamb on the table is because the lamb was at the table. The lamb was at the table. Jesus, the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, was there. He was telling them, this is what I'm going to do. By my body, by my blood, I'm going to set people free, not just from one nation at one time in history, for, for all people at all times in history. And it's so striking. You know, that's what we do 
as we're going to do in a moment, when we take communion, when we take the bread and the wine, what we do is we remind ourselves, we declare, we proclaim the Lord's death. And we're reminding ourselves actually who we are. Because when you remember, you put things back together. You remember. You reorientate yourself around your identity. And I don't know if you've ever felt this way. Sometimes people feel like maybe Jesus' death is something I should be ashamed of. You know, because 2,000 years ago, Jesus had to die because of what I've done. And it's something to be ashamed of. But that's not it. You know, if you feel that way, then actually what will happen is that you'll marginalize it in your life. You won't celebrate it in your life because you'll feel, oh, this is something I should be ashamed of. And things we're ashamed of, which we think don't fit where we are, which we think prevent us from belonging, we try and hide. Key events in your history, though, are really important to remember. So I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I grew up in a beautiful town just north of uh, London called Luton. And um, I love my hometown. I'm really fond of it. And actually, for 17 years of my life, that was pretty much all I knew. I loved Luton. I loved everything about it. I really enjoyed it. And actually, I still do. Um, But then when I was 17, I started meeting people from different places in the UK and who moved in slightly different circles to the circles I was used to moving in. And um, I... uh, You'd kind of meet these people, interviews, job interviews, university interviews, things like that. And they'd say, where are you from? And I'd say, Luton, you know, full of enthusiasm and excitement. And they'd be like, oh. And um, it was quite hard to put my finger on it at first, but it was almost like there was something wrong about where I was from. So they would be a little bit kind of smug or a little bit kind of superior. And some of them were just really rude about my hometown. And it meant I kind of without even realizing it, this kind of feeling of slightly like shame at where I grew up started to come up inside me. And you know, I, I thought, well, maybe this place where I'm from, this key part of my identity, maybe it doesn't fit in the places I'm going into. So maybe I should hide it a bit. That was kind of how I felt. So almost without even doing it consciously, I started to kind of slightly hide it. So they'd say, oh, nice to meet you. Where are you from? And I'd say, Bedfordshire. And they'd say, oh, we're in Bedfordshire. And I'd be like, uh, Chilton Hills? And they'd be like, oh, where near the Chilton Hills? And I'd be like, near Dunstable. No one knew, no one knows where Dunstable is. And so, um, so that was kind of like the end of the conversation. And I'd do this, and I became quite good at it. Kind of, kind of, not explicitly, but just gently kind of curving the question. Gently kind of hiding this part of who I was. But the thing was, I started to feel ashamed about doing it. I started to feel ashamed about the fact I felt ashamed about where I was from. Shame on shame on shame. And my little brother came up to me and he said, what are you doing? And I was like, well, you know, it's complicated. He was like, Steve, don't be ashamed of where you're from. That's part of who you are. You can't be ashamed of who you are. You need to represent, not hide. So I was like, okay. And um, so I started getting in there really quickly. I'd be like, hi, I'm Steve from Luton. And... um, (laughs) You know, really fronting up with it. You know, it's nice to meet you. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm from Luton. Nice to meet you. And, and what I was doing, and what I still do a little bit when I, when I talk about it, is I'm not just letting you know. I'm reminding myself who I am and where I'm from. I don't want to forget it. There was a time when I ran the risk of forgetting it. It's an important part of my identity, actually. And sometimes when it comes to the cross, we can think, oh, that's something to be ashamed of because I did all these things wrong and Jesus had to die for me, so I feel ashamed of it. And if you feel ashamed of it, you'll marginalize it, you'll hide it, you'll move it from the center of your lived experience. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. 
because I died on the cross, you are free from shame. Because I carried your shame, you cannot carry shame anymore. Don't do it. Don't be ashamed of the cross. Don't hide the cross. He wants us to remember the cross, to celebrate it, to remember it in a way that we reorder our entire lives around this crucial event in our history because it tells us what Jesus has done, that he has died for our sins, and it tells us who we are. That I am first and foremost a much-loved child of God. I have inestimable value because he gave himself for me. That's what the cross tells you. Remember what Jesus did on the cross. It makes a difference. Celebrate it. He loves you. He won you. That's who you are. And when we take bread and wine, we celebrate, we proclaim, we declare to ourselves, to each other, and to this city, Jesus is Lord. Jesus died for me. I am a much-loved daughter, a much-loved son of the Most High God. That's my identity. Like it or not, that's who I am. We celebrate. We remember the cross. So be reminded, but also be present. It's fascinating, I think, that in all that's going on, Jesus most desires to get his mates together for a meal. What he's most looking forward to with all the challenges he's facing is connecting over a meal. And sometimes when successes and failures come our way, when we face great opportunities and great challenges, when life gets very busy, the urgent displaces the important. We can be so focused on the immediate thing that's happening now that we can, without realizing it, start to disconnect from the people who are around us, our friends, those who we need to be with. We can isolate ourselves. One of the interesting things is pressure tries to force you to turn inwards when you most need to focus outwards on others. You need people who are close enough to you, who connect with you. You need to invest and build in connection. Be fully present. And if we're honest, in our world today, it can be quite hard to be fully present. Lots of things can distract us. So it's just a really important text. We have these distraction devices in our pockets the whole time. And it can obstruct our connection with the person that's right in front of us because distraction kills connection. It's so interesting. Do you know one of, the, one of the popular apps at the moment is an app that helps you stop using other apps. One of my, one of my friends uh, works for a software company. They've produced one, one of the most popular apps there is. When he comes home, I find this fascinating. When he comes home, goes for a meal with his family, he takes his phone and he puts it in a box because he doesn't want it to destroy connection in his family. He told me this, I thought that's a brilliant idea. Then about five seconds later, I was like, what about my music? My music's on my phone. I need my music at home. What about my Spotify playlist? What about this? What about that? We become so reliant on these things, but sometimes they get in the way of what we most need, which is connection, being fully present with the people around us. You need some companions in life some companions to travel with. And do you know what a companion is? Do you know what company is? Someone you break bread with. Bread with, that's what companion means. Someone you break bread with. Who do you break bread with? I find it interesting, I read a study this week that on average, 
People in France spend two hours, 11 minutes, eating food each day. People in Italy, two hours, one minute. Uh, people in the UK, only one hour, 18 minutes. Almost half. Now, believe me, it's not that we eat half as much food as people in France and Italy. We just spend half as much time doing it. We find it hard to connect. It's an important statement of intent to say, I'm going to have a dinner table. I'm going to gather people around my dinner table. I'm going to connect. Who do you break bread with? And obviously, we break bread here together. And in an ideal world, we'd have tables all down the middle. We'd have a huge feast, lots of roast duck, lots of other things. And we'd all spend three hours, you know, eating and drinking and remembering who Jesus is and what he's done and celebrating that connection between us. But actually, even as we take bread and wine today, we can connect. Why? Because Jesus is really present here with us. I wonder if you believe that. You know, Jesus is present with you. Wherever you go, he's present in the boardroom. He's present in the exam hall. He's present when you have an argument with a colleague, when you're annoyed with someone in your family. He's present when you're anxious and you're afraid. He's present when you're on the tube. There is no situation about which you can say in your life, Jesus ain't interested in this bit here. Like, this is a little bit complicated. This is human interaction. It's complicated. It's messy. People are falling out. Jesus isn't interested in that bit of my life. Why would he be? He's interested in church, but not this bit. Look around his table. At his table, he has the guy who has betrayed him unto death. There, tucking in. In a moment, they're going to have a big argument, all his followers, about who's the greatest. I think Jesus understands the complexity of human interaction. There's no part of your life you need to be afraid about inviting him into. He gets it. And we can be present with each other because he is present with us. We can connect because he connects us to each other. His broken body makes us whole. His wine poured, his blood poured out, the wine poured out is in order that we might be drawn together. And it's very powerful. It changes things. When I was um, 15, um, my family kind of fell apart, basically. Um, there was an argument which became a dispute, which became a division, and it just went on and on and on. And actually, as a result of that, um, it was like my family was ripped apart, and I didn't see um, some of my family for 15 years, actually. But the hardest years were the first two years, between the age of 15 and 17. Because, I mean, if you've experienced something like that in your family, you know the chaos of that. You know the confusion of that. You know what it's like in a home where there's those kind of things going on, where there's um, arguments and fights a lot of the time. And for me, that meant home was a little bit chaotic. And it also meant, I mean, my school was, just by its very nature, quite chaotic. And, um, and therefore, church was a place I realized I could come to and find a level of peace, actually. And I don't know why this is, but I just found for those two years that one of the most significant things for me, maybe just once a month, was to, in church, go to the front and take the bread and the wine, to take communion. I just knew in that moment that Jesus was really present with me, that he was connected to me, that he hadn't abandoned me. 
And although my life felt like it was being ripped apart, when I took the broken bread and the poured out wine, it felt like Jesus was putting me back together again. His presence in you enables you to be present with others. You know, his presence in you, knowing that he is present with you, reminding yourself of that as you take communion. It gave me strength. It gave me resilience to be fully present with others, even though life felt like a storm. That's the difference it can make. His presence enables you to be fully present, whatever it is you're facing. Be reminded, but also be present, and then be expectant. One of the most significant factors most researchers say in thriving through a time of pressure is whether you have hope, whether you expect things will turn out well. It's more than just a positive mental attitude, important though that is. If you have hope for the future, hope that your best is yet to come, it changes things. And we're told to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Jesus says in this passage, I'm not going to eat again of this and drink this cup of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Our hope, our actual hope, is that Jesus will come again as he promised, and he will establish his kingdom in all its fullness on this earth. And when that happens, do you know what's going to happen? One of the things that's going to happen is we are going to have a huge party. We're going to all tuck into this massive feast. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be off the hook. The best party you have ever been to times a million. And what Jesus says is, part of it is we get to sit down, have a glass of wine with Jesus. I quite like that idea. You know, a nice bottle of vintage, whatever. You know, Jesus, tell me a bit more about, you know. It's great. That unhindered connection with Jesus, with others. I can't wait for it. It's really exciting. And that hope, the hope of great joy, the overwhelming happiness of an unending celebration, that is the hope which was set before Jesus, which enabled him to endure the cross. That's why he was prepared to suffer. Because he loves you and he was looking forward to that celebration, that party, that feast. And actually the hope of that, if you have the hope of that, if you have the expectation of that, in your innermost place, if you really believe that is what is to happen, it changes things. It changes actually how you face circumstances today, this week. Why? Because hope breeds resilience. Hope just breeds resilience. When I was working as a barrister, I did a a three-month case, and I think of all the cases I did, it was one of the most hard-fought bitterly contested cases. It was high pressure. The stakes were high. The media were in every single day reporting on it. There was, it was quite punchy in court, so to speak. Um, there was lots going on, and we were just working all day, most of the night, trying to get through this case. Three months long, day in, day out, day in, day out. And uh, one of the things that kept me going through the case was that right at the end of the case, about a week after it was due to finish, my best friend from school was getting married. And so all my friends from school were there. My best friends from Luton would be there. I just couldn't wait for this wedding. I thought that's the perfect way to finish this case. All this pressure is going to be released. And now I'm going to be able to go to this exciting party. But what happened was that the trial started to overrun. And I was kind of worrying. I was thinking, wait a minute. What if I can't go to the party? I was getting nervous about this. This is what I've been looking forward to for three months. And you can't just kind of say, you can't just kind of turn up and say, oh, you know, you're on everyone else, 
clients, jury. So sorry, I wouldn't be here tomorrow because um, I've got a wedding. But don't worry, it's a really special friend of mine. So I think it's quite important I go. It just doesn't work that way. You just have to be in court. So I was thinking, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. And then we got to the very last week, the, a few days before my, my friend's wedding. And then on the Thursday, the day before my friend's wedding, the jury came back. And they had a verdict. And they acquitted my client, which was a huge release. I felt this huge release of pressure. And then I suddenly remembered, it's my mate's wedding tomorrow. So we kind of drove up, and I was kind of completely and utterly overwhelmed with excitement. I was kind of going up to people saying, hi, how's it going? Really good to see you. I'm so excited to be here. Hi, how are you doing? Da, 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 da. Just going around, chatting to everyone in the church before the wedding started. I was like this. And then after a few minutes, one of my good friends came up to me, who knows a little bit about this stuff, and said, Steve, have you taken something? <laughs> I said, what? He said, have you, have you had a little kind of thing before you came here? I was like, no. And he said, oh, oh, it's just like normally you're on a 9 or a 10. You feel like you're on a 17 or an 18 right now. Um, we were just wondering what was going on. Anyway, I was so excited. The wedding went. Then after the wedding, we got in the car. We're about to drive to a reception. Beth, my wife, leaned over, pulled the keys out of the ignition, put them in her pocket and said, Steve, we're sitting here for 15 minutes until you calm down. And this is the only time that one adult has ever said that to another adult. <laughs> but I, the thing was, I was so overwhelmed with excitement and joy and expectation. I was just so excited to be there. You know, I was uncertain about whether I'd even get to that wedding. Do you know there is no uncertainty? If you know Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there is no uncertainty about your eternal future. You are invited to this feast, to this party, what's called the wedding party of the Lamb. You are going to be face to face with Jesus. Jesus will take you through death into the greatest party of all time. That's what sustains you. That's what enables you to face whatever you're going through now. My best is yet to come. Jesus is coming back. He's going to return. And the hope, the expectation of what that will look like blows my mind. I can't wait. It changes things. It means that your failures don't finish you. Your successes don't seduce you because you know your best is yet to come. You know that you are destined. You are assured. You have the unshakable expectation that soon, oh so very soon, Jesus will return. The bread will be broken. The wine will be poured out and we will celebrate together with him. You know, lots of what worries us occupies our minds so much from day to day, loom so large today, will fade away like shadows at daybreak. Relatively few things will matter. Why? Because Jesus will be with us. We will see him face to face. And we can know, we can celebrate today what he has done, what that means for our identity. We can celebrate that he is present with us today by his spirit. And we can look forward with hope and joy and expectation of all that is to come. And we can declare that to ourselves, to each other, to this church, to this city, to this nation, and to this world. And that will build and forge a resilience in our faith, which will enable us to face anything that comes our way. Because soon and very soon, he is coming. In Jesus' name, amen.